Welcome to Kashris on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashris Magazine. Tonight we have some very interesting topics. One is a continuation of something I believe I started last week, which is about the different restaurants uh, that are not uh, the vegetarian restaurants or where the hashkoch is a poor hashkoch. We're discussing that briefly last time. We have some material on that. There's the the topic that's going on raging on Israel today uh, between um, the Rabbanut and uh, Rabbi David Stav. Who is uh, comp- competing and thinking of trying to set up a different cashless organization to compete with the government's cashless agency? And in addition to that, we'll be discussing a very interesting topic. Somebody called me up just before the show and asked me to speak about this. I put something together very quickly. Uh, I got quite a bit of material, and it's all about the question on the brachas on different foods. But specifically, we were zeroing in on those kind of foods that, uh, like Melba toast, Zwieback, and uh, there's this, this uh, pita chips, bagel chips. Those are the areas that were very confusing to people. And uh, I, I, I did a little work on that, and I think you'll, you'll enjoy hearing about that too. So without further ado, let me start with the topic that we had started last time, which was about the uh, restaurants. Now, I found, I had, didn't bring it with me last time, I got the OU to send me another copy. It's a Dafa Kashras publication from the OU. Um, it's, their, it's what they call their consumer edition. Almost kosher is not really kosher. That's the topic. And I, the, anybody wants to get a copy of this, just email me, kashras at aol.com, and right on the top, um, uh, almost kosher. All right, that's that, that's a good way of saying it. Almost kosher, and I'll send you this stuff for kosher. But what's interesting is because a lot of people are always caught up in this. In the old days, going back into the fifties, sixties, whatever it was, way back, uh, people used to be confused about whether you could eat certain things outside. Um, Later on, the conservative movement made it okay to eat these things and said it's all right in certain circumstances to eat pizza from a non-Jewish place, and et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to go into the details. It's a sad story, and, uh, but, the, but, but we're not that way, and therefore we have, uh, we have to deal with reality. And reality is that there are so many problems in a restaurant, so many. But you're going to hear a few of them today. And even if it, you never have this problem of going into a non-kosher restaurant, you've you got an idea of some interesting things. It was article was very well written. It was written by Rabbi Gersten, who's one of the main people there in writing at the OU. He's, the, called a, the, he's called a rabbinical coordinator for a recorder of the OU PSAC and policy. So he really knows what the OU wants you to do. That's a very interesting uh, topic he took on. He was talking about this, that, that, that some people um, want to go into non-certified restaurants, let's say vegan, vegetarian, Indian, etc. And, and, and he brought down, in, he, in this article, he brought something interesting. Uh, there was a certain Vada Kashras that wanted to certify one of these restaurants. But of course, they couldn't get them to pay for a mashkiach full-time or even part-time probably. So they had to know if, how difficult it would be to certify one of these so-called vegetarian restaurants. 
So they, they came to an interesting question, and he asked Rabbi Belsky, because we're asking Rabbi Belsky certain questions. So Rabbi Israel Belsky from the OU, so this Vod put this t- question to him. I never heard of this word before, and I'm sorry, I didn't look it up, but I'll explain it anyway. He wanted to, they wanted to know if there's a Bishal Akum on Dosas, D-O-S-A-S. It's a fermented crepe made of a batter of rice and black lentils. Obviously, in the Indian world, that's it, you know? That's something chashiv. And I never heard of it, but we understand that rice can sometimes be a Shiloh from Bishal Akum. And if this is a special Michael by them, maybe it's a Bishal Akum situation. It seems that the dosas in that particular restaurant was like the main thing. <laughs> it was, you know, like a calzone or, a, you know, some kind of crepe. And it was obviously, uh, it looks in the picture, it looks like a blintz. But obviously the materials inside of the crepe are, are different. So uh, they asked that Shiloh and Rabbi Belsky, you know, dealt with it. In the end, he concluded that a dosa is, has Bishal Akam on it. And by the way, the OU is very careful about things that use rice. If they use cooked rice in a product, the OU requires Bishal Yisrael. That's not a joke. That's a serious issue. I don't know how many cashless agencies take that seriously, but I know that the OU does take it seriously. And uh, they reviewed all their products and, and, and came up with a few that they had to change how they make them. You know, how it's how they get, take care of the Bishal Yisrael. So, yes, that rice was a, was a sticky thing, and uh, they had to go and make the dosa a uh, Bishal Yisrael. So Rabbi Gersten says he doesn't know how it ended, the story, but, uh, you know, he, they, he's just pointing out that when you say this, the story is almost kosher anyway, it's got, now you're going to put a hashkoch on it, it's a cinch, it's not so simple. There's a lot of issues that do come up. Now, one of the, he's going through a few of the uh, the problems you would have in so-called almost kosher restaurant. <laughs> it's a, such a thing, right? Almost kosher. Good, you know, uh, good but not good enough. For example, the wine and the wine vinegar. You see, they use wine vinegar. Maybe you don't use it, but balsamic uh, vinegar is is a very uh, common uh, vinegar, and people like the wine vinegars. They like to use co- they like to use wine in their cooking. Maybe you don't, but some of these restaurants do do that in their cooking. And the non-kosher ones, A, are easier to find, B, are less expensive, and C, at least according to the summer chefs, it doesn't taste the same. So they're not happy with our versions, and they would prefer to use the non-kosher certified ones. Now, if you're leaving a restaurant like a, an Indian restaurant, a vegetarian restaurant, whatever it is, not a Jewish owner, not a religious owner, and you're leaving in the hands of these non-Jews all day long, and when they run out of something they go out to the store to buy it, do you think you're going to be able to track it down even if you come once a day or once a week? It's not going to happen because what, what invariably what's done is you use the product up right away, or you pour it into bottles and containers that have a, a kosher name to it. And this is what happened. Many years ago, um, I told you this story once. I think, I mean, if I tell it more than once, I'm sorry, but uh, the, 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 a good friend of mine has, has uh, involved one of the hashkochas, and he, uh, he told me the story about how many years later, a, um, 
they were under the certification, the bakery was under certification for many years, and then they decided to sell. And it seemed that they decided to sell to somebody who was a from Jew. Uh, and they didn't realize that things are going to get blared back. They didn't realize our, our grapevine and our Lush and Horror uh, factories, etc. So what happened was they told him that, you know, the fellow asked, he said, well, how do you make this thing? You know, this thing, this thing needs a dairy ingredient. He says, well, we use it. He said, but it's a part of a bakery. Well, when the rabbi, when we need to put it in, we send the rabbi to another section or we send him out and we put it in. That's it. And he never knew. That's that. That's the kind of thing that could be done in a short time. So, you know, maybe you're talking about a big factory. They have to show bills of lading and all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of rigmarole. So maybe you can track track the uh, the paper trail. But there is no such thing in a regular regular restaurant. In the middle of Borough Park, in the middle of Borough Park, a restaurant with a very good hashkocha served non-kosher hot dogs. Not a hundred years ago, a couple of years ago. What happened? The non-Jewish worker went out, took money from the cash register, and went across the street and bought non-kosher hot dogs because they were out, and used the non-kosher hot dogs until they caught it. And then, of course, you know, it was too late for some people. And that's the middle of Borough Park. So, yes, we do have to watch these people like hawks. And if there's nobody there, well... The non-kosher wine, non-kosher vinegar certainly could easily get in. And I don't know if you know, but I do know that some of these chefs, you know, I mean, they remember how food was made in the, in the, in the Altaheim, in the, in the place where they come from, India, uh, China, Japan, wherever it is they came from. So they, had, they, had, they, rem- they remember the way the food really tasted. And some of them have special ingredients that they like to use. And they'll smuggle it in. They'll put it in their jacket pocket or whatever it is, and they'll smuggle it in and use it when you, right under your nose. It's a very, very hard job as a mashkiach in one of those places because there's a, a, a desire to use these things, and a lot has to do with the relationship between the mashkiach and the, and the chef and the, uh, the general attitude in the place. If there is some tension, it's more likely that this thing will occur. And many times, chefs have compromised kashras right under the nose of the mashkiach and the owner. So it's definitely something to uh, be concerned about. That's why we need a hashkachim. So another thing, he talks about it here too. He said, uh, Rabbi Gersten, he says, one of the most common kashras violations, even in the well-supervised restaurants that have a mashkiach tamidi, is when a chef tries to sneak in a bottle of non-kosher balsamic vinegar. There you go. Apparently, some chefs are bothered by the taste <laughs> difference between non-kosher balsamic vinegar and kosher, the kosher substitute. I don't know why it is that, but that's what it seems to be. Anyway, uh, the processed foods generally require certifications. It's it's not you can't read labels. You have to be you know because some of these people walk into these non-kosher restaurants and they they look at it, the labels look good, nothing's on it. With the manu- the factories and the manufacturing, the way that they do today. Uh, even vegan sources can be produced with, uh, they can be in the same factories that produce sources with meats and cheeses. Plain sources made on the same production line as the sources with meats and cheeses are halachically non-kosher as well. So that's just an idea. Now here's some, one of the things that, again, this separates the men from the boys. Taro, 
rice, eggplant, and many other cooked vegetables require kosher certification in order to ensure that the laws of Bishal Akum were complied with. In other words, you need Bisha Yisrael. These are vegetables, the taro, the rice, the eggplant, and some of the others, and they're not edible raw. And they're hosheva vegetables. And, and it's been determined halakhically that these vegetables need Bishal Yisrael. If you want to see a discussion of it in the Orach Shulchan, in the Lachas of uh, Bishal Akum, the Orach Shulchan discusses maybe a dozen different vegetables and, uh, and, and whether they need Bishal Yisrael or not. And you'll be surprised how many he recommended. Today, maybe they're going to say, this is not a good, this is not a chash of a, a vegetable. That's not chash of a vegetable. But when you get down to these that he gave you, the taro and the rice and the eggplant, you know and I know that those are something that is that is special and it's served at a, in a fancy way, at a fancy affair. And uh, and you can't do it without doing a bisha Yisrael, actually having a Jew put the fire on or According to Svadim, to do Bishal Yisrael, you have to actually put the, uh, the you have to put the food onto the fire. Another thing is that the vegetables. Everybody realizes this, of course, right? The the, the green leafy vegetables. You know, you, you, them washing it off three times and five times is not going to do any good. Besides the fact, because they don't check it at all, and also they don't want to wash it too much. Because when you wash vegetables, they get they lose their appearance, and they uh, and, and it's just nobody's going to want to wash vegetables too much. So you just get a quick rinse, and that's about it. And you know it could be a fancy restaurant, but it doesn't mean that they, they're checking their vegetables or keeping them that specially clean. In a vegetarian, non-vegan restaurant, the kashrus issues are compounded. In other words, we're not we were talking now vegan which means there's no animal products at all. But once you go into animal products, the fish, the cheese, then then it gets real tough. So even though the so-called vegetarian, you know, but there's vegetarians that are not vegan, and they're going to have dairy, they're going to have other stuff in there that will be problems. Uh, Chal of Yisrael is one thing, but, but Gevinas Yisrael is another one. Whether you eat, whether you drink Chol of Israel or not, uh, you must have Gvinas Israel. You must have Jewish cheese. You cannot have non-Jewish cheese. It's it's not it's not kosher, just because there was no the Jew did not actually put the the uh, the the ingredients in the uh, the to make it to solidify the, the so without that you don't have kosher cheese. All of the cheeses that we have, that you see these, you know, dozens of companies today, and I saw one company that's a Goisha company completely, and they have, in addition to all their Goisha cheeses, they have Chol of Yisrael and Chol of Stam. They have two separate lines. I don't know how they do it, but it was a good hush. It was the OU on it. It was the OU on it, and uh, the, the ones that are produced properly are obviously produced properly, which means the Mashkir actually puts in the um, coagulant. Otherwise, it's not a kosher cheese. Uh, even if one orders a vegan dish in a vegetarian restaurant, there's still the concern that the pots and the pans and the utensils and the plates are all used for non-kosher foods in the restaurant. So that you know, that, then you come to the one which I think is most important for us to think of: a person shouldn't eat in a non-kosher restaurant because it's marisayin. Now you may be going in there and. Maybe you only had a, a, a tea, 
and the tea came in a this and a that. You did it some way where you feel it was it was innocuous. But you're sitting down in a non-kosher restaurant. If you're a man, you're wearing a yarmulke. If you're a woman, you're married, you have a, a shaitel on, or you look serious, and therefore everybody knows who you are. And there's a man and woman together, then they know anyway. And and here, you're, you're eating in a non-kosher restaurant. Oh, I just do this. Oh. Hear this story. This story is very, very worthwhile. In a certain Orthodox community, it was accepted that you one could purchase coffee at the local Dunkin' Donuts that did not have any kosher certification. So people would buy just a plain coffee, go in and get it and walk out. Maybe it's out there, I don't know. It's out there also, yeah. So the store saw a number of Jews coming in with yarmulkes, etc., and they decided, you know what, let's go for kosher. So they got kosher. They wanted to boost the sales, so they got kosher. The only problem was that the Rabbanim in that area or town or whatever, we don't know where it is, and he's not, he doesn't explain, but you know, the, the Rabbanim in that area did not want anybody to think they didn't hold from this hashkacha, and they didn't want any from people to go into that restaurant, the Dunkin' Donuts, even to buy a coffee anymore. They forbid everybody to go in to buy a coffee because people are going to think that you can go in and eat there. So that's a very, very interesting thing. You are a uh, spokesman for uh, orthodoxy, for from people, whatever. And whether you like it or not, you are a spokesperson, you are a representative, willy-nilly, just because you exist and you're going into a place and you're doing something. So when somebody sees you, the assumption is it's okay. And they don't stop to think, what did you do in there? Now, again, in the old days, or in that old in that Dunkin' Donuts when he went in and bought the coffee, when there was no ashkacha, and uh, maybe, it, maybe it's the old days when they didn't use the same machinery to, for, for washing the dishes together. Okay, but in, if there would be such a situation, when we grew up, everybody took a coffee in a Howard Johnson's or in a non-kosher place. We didn't have in those days, or we weren't aware in those days, that they were using this common uh, uh, dishwasher for all the things in the place. And maybe there used to be just this big urn, and basically you put water in the urn and turn the urn on, and that's how it was done. So it wasn't anything to do in the, uh, the actual urn. And there were no, in my day, there was no flavored coffees. There was nothing, but should have been nothing. So we all knew, everybody gave out that you could go and buy a coffee in a non-kosher restaurant. Today it's changed. The OU and all the conscious organizations say today that you can't go into a full-scale restaurant and buy a coffee anymore. It's over with. It's only the smaller places that are like called the, you know, the, the, the gas station ones, and you know those gas stations have little places to walk into, or uh, it, or it's like what they call a kiosk. Those places you you're you're okay because they don't even have dishwasher. They wash everything out in a little uh, sink. It doesn't get hot enough, and we, therefore we don't consider it to be trafe. So, uh, so the kalim that you use just for coffee are basically innocuous in those places. But in a full-scale restaurant, the cashless agencies say today not to go in and purchase even a coffee. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I, I don't know if I've ever mentioned it here, but I had a friend. He's no longer here, and he... Uh, with conscious personality, very interesting gentleman, 
and he he said to me, you know, I very rarely go after the chuppah into the uh, into the dining room, into the, in, when the, when they're certain, into the uh, the ballroom for the for this for the dinner. I'll only walk in there if I could eat everything. Because if I walk in, he said, I represent kashrus. Many, many people know I do kashrus, and they know that I'm. And if I'm in there, then it's like a statement that I uh, that I hold from it. So I never walk in. He says, I walk right away. Unless I'm going to eat the meal completely, I walk away. I not. I don't want to be seen in that building. For the chuppah, I'll go, but not to the not to any reception at all. I, I discussed it with a certain rov who I, I discuss her shilas with. And he told me that if you think if in situations where mishpacha you you feel a necessity to be there, so you could uh, walk around in that room if you're not if you're not going to stay you not think the kashas is good enough for you, you could walk around in that room and say we'll load everybody mazotov etc. But don't sit down, don't sit down, and don't, maybe don't stay too long also. But but don't sit down, sitting down is a sign that you're part of everything. Whether you eat or you don't eat, you're sitting down in there and everybody else is there. I don't know if uh, if most places that we're talking about really deserve to be treated that way. Most of the places are kosher enough to eat anyway. I'm invited out of town to a, to a simcha, which for my own purposes I wouldn't eat there. Uh, I know a little bit about it and I'm not planning to eat there. But uh, that's a local hashgacha from that town, and I certainly don't feel anything wrong in sitting there as long as I want to sit there, because I don't because I don't think that I'm misleading anybody in that town. And there, that's their rov, that's their hashgacha. They all sign on to it, and you know whether he does a perfect job or he doesn't, he's the best they got. And I don't think that uh, that they're going to be misled by me coming in there because they're going to go there anyway. I heard that Svara once from Adam Godel. Anyway, we go on to the next uh, area here, which is Eretz Yisrael. The Matzav in Eretz Yisrael is pretty bad. I don't think everybody who is listening to me knows about it. I don't know if everybody cares about it, but unfortunately, we may all suffer from it. And that problem is that the rabbinate in Eretz Yisrael is under attack from... A lot of different groups, and uh, they they recently, finally, permitted restaurants to give the impression that they're kosher. They're not allowed to say that they're kosher, but they can give the impression that they're kosher. The the, the Supreme Court, what they call the the badats, the the base didn't said over there. You know the the big, uh, the, the not badats the the. Uh, what is it again? Uh, it's the, I forgot. Uh, I forgot how they pronounce it. Whatever it is, they, they their their main uh, court, the high court in Israel, has me like some I call it Supreme Court. They ruled that while the rabbinate is the only body that's authorized to certify places as kosher, restaurants without any hashkacha uh, from the rabbanut can state that they serve kosher food, but they can't say they're kosher. <laughs> they can't put a sign up kosher, but they can say we serve kosher food, and they can list certain products, etc. So they can give you an impression that they're kosher. This was forbidden 
until this recent uh, passing in the from the Supreme Court there in Eretz Israel, and because of that, there's a lot of trouble for the rabbinate. There's a rabbi David Stav. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, not not going into too much. I'm not going to get lost in politics, but I want you to understand what's happening. So Rabbi Stav uh, is challenging, and he he is the head of Tsohar. Tsohar is an organization that that is trying to move the country into a sort of, um, you know, middle road in in, in Yiddishkeit and Zionism and and religion. Not... All halachic, no conservative, no reform directly involved, but uh, a complete change. In 2013, he was running for becoming the, uh, the chief rabbi of Israel. Rabbi Lau won, but, uh, but this David Stav was trying very hard to become the chief rabbi. Had he gotten any promised, listen to this, change. And yes, he would have changed. He would have changed from top to bottom. He wouldn't have permitted, uh, you know, non-religious marriages. He wouldn't have done anything of that nature. But he was bent on changing the entire structure of the rabbinate. And I don't know the details about it, but it was considered to be, you know, a dramatic difference from the more conservative and religious approach that uh, Rabbi Lau represents. There's a more radical left this kind of an approach. I'm not exactly sure what he had in mind, but whatever it was, he didn't win. And uh, now he's challenging the whole rabbinate, and, and he, wants to, he wants to be able to give kosher certification in competition with the rabbinate. The interesting part is that Rabbi David Staff is a rabbi of a town called Shoham, and he's also the head of Tsohar, uh, and it's a rabbinical organization, and he wants to give, start giving hashgacha in competition with the chief rabbinate. So the chief rabbinate basically threatened him. And here's a little quote: The chief rabbinate's dire- director general, Rabbi Moshe Dagan, said the media reported that the Tsohar organization, under your leadership, is considering establishing an independent kashrus supervision system that will act as an alternative to the rabbinate. And then they told him, as can be seen from the ruling given last week by the Supreme Court, businesses will not be able to present themselves as kosher or supervised by a private kashrus body. So even if he does do something, he's not allowed to say that he's certifying them. In any event, they basically told him that if he does, um, then they probably will have to get him, remove him as a rabbi of the town of Shoham. But that's not only a small thing. If the man really takes on the chief rabbinate, then it's a total destruction of the of the kashrus system in Israel. And they've been chipping away at it and chipping away at it. And I'm really surprised. I'm on this side of the, the pond, right? I have not heard one word from anybody in this country. I write articles about it. I have not heard one word from anybody in this country about how we have to help the rabbinate. We have to rally to support the chief rabbinate of Israel because they're giving us the basic kashras all across the country. If you would know the system, and I do know it, 
it's unbelievable the system that the rabbin has right underneath you know in 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 that country where the where so many things are are not in order the rabbin is offering a high quality kosher service to the, to the maximum number of people in Israel i mean it's if you want to go to the Badatzim, to the Eid Haredes, or the Shevis Yisrael, or Rabbi Rubin from Mechovot, Matova Manayim, that's that's our prerogative. But but the basics, even in those Ashkachas, is the chief rabbinate. And it's it, it's, it would be a terrible thing for the Jews in Israel. Not for you and for me. We could do fine. We could go there to Israel and eat Badatz this and Badatz that. But, but, if, but the average person who was floating around Israel, he needs these rabbinates. He's in this town. That's the chief rabbinate. Comes along, Rabbi Staff. I'm giving Ashkoch on this one. And, when, and they're giving Ashkoch to places that are open on Shabbos, that not not owned by from Jews, and in some cases not owned by Jews. And they're getting these other so-called cautious organizations giving them Ashkoch. It's really a very, very pathetic scene. And I'm very frustrated that on this side of the pond, as we say, I haven't seen anything, any reaction whatsoever. And I'm hoping that we will sometime see. I don't want to get lost in, uh, in, in that topic more because it's just too, it's too political. And I, I don't like to go there. I don't know about, I'm not commenting on Rabbi Stav himself because I don't know what he's, what he's all about. And the articles that I read are very confusing. It seems that you know he is pretty traditional, and uh, and and yet he seems to be challenging the government. And I don't know exactly at all what it all means. Somebody who knows more could tell me. So I'm coming now to my other topic, which is what I should have done first, probably, and that is the question. And I brought along a couple of brachas books. If anybody wants to call in with some shilas, uh, brachas shilas, I can get, help you out with it. Uh, but I want to first tell you this basic concept. We're talking about what bracha do you make on Melba toast? What bracha do you make on uh, pita chips? What bracha do you make on bagel chips? What bracha do you make on, uh, okay, let's give you more, something more interesting, um, calzone, croissants, croutons. Very interesting. Very interesting questions. Okay. So I'm going to tell you um, I'm going to tell you some some striking things. I I, I think we'll start from with the with the OU first. I'm reading a little piece from the OU. Melba toast is a type of cracker, as previously noted. Crackers are one form of pas haborba kisnen. So the bracha is mizonas, right? No 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 no. Melba toast is produced by first baking loaves of bread, regular regular bread. I saw it made, I, I saw the, how, how it's done. They take regular bread. Melba toast is, uh, is smaller, right? The smaller breads. I mean, the breads are long, but the height is small, is low. They don't want it to be too big. But it's regular bread. After the bread is baked, regular baking, regular baking in the oven, it's left to sit, to sit outside, for two days to dry out. Now when it's dried out, then they slice it very thin and they toast it. And that's how you make Melba toast commercially. Commercially we're talking now. There is another kind of Melba toast. I'll talk about it in a minute. 
Rabelsky Zatzal ruled that since the Melba toast starts out as a regular loaf of bread, it does not lose its hamosi status by being baked into a cracker later on. Even though the final product was intended to be a cracker from the very beginning. So, according to Rabbi Belsky, which is the position the OU follows, and they saying that Melba toast should be hamotzi. I saw Melba toast made in different ways. And uh, you, you really have to know how, how it's made. Now, where I saw that some people teach when they're in the cooking classes, they teach you how to make Melba toast. What they do is they take a piece of bread and they toast it on both sides and then they cut it in half and then toast the inside so that they have both sides of a very thin sliced piece of bread. And sometimes they put it in a third, another time. But I, I think that basically what I saw was it was two bakings. And when you see it, it's you know crusty on all sides and as thin as anything. That's a homemade one. But the one that they're making in the, in the commercially, they're using low kinds of bread, small breads, you know, tiny, I mean, you know, say less than half the size probably of a regular slice of bread. It's thinner and it's less length and less width. And they're cutting it into small pieces and toasting it. And it comes out what you see Melba toast. That's, that's, that's what the situation is there. So, and that was the first thing I saw. And then I happened to notice that in this book, Vizos HaBrocha, which is very, very popular in Israel, and I personally liked it very much when I first came in contact with it, and he discusses Melba toast, and unfortunately, he comes to the the absolute opposite position. He says it's Mizonos. And not only does it say it's Mizonos, let me see if I can find a page. That's the question. Yeah, I got it. So even though it, uh, he say, he's not just saying it in his own right, I'm going to tell you where he got it from. He says, many people pask in the Melba toast should be Baremine uh, Mizonos. And he says, why? Because Tchilas Asiyas Halechem Hayasok Kedela Asos Tsinimim the reason why you made the bread was in order to make the toast. So the, he brings down as the sources, Toysvus Bracha and Rosh Shlomo Zalman Orbach, Reb Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg, and he says that Reb Meir Elio also, She'im ha'isa nilusha kedela asosi mena matzios ha'brocha mezonos. If the intention was to make this melbatos into crackers, then the bracha is mezonos. So that's the way it says over here. Okay, now, not pretty much about the same time, there came out the laws of brachas by Rabbi Binyamin Forst, who has a classic sefer on so many topics on on Nida and Shabbos, Kashrus, not on Shabbos. Does he have Shabbos? I know he has on brachos and on 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 Kashrus and Nida. It's a beautiful svarim from the Art Scroll. And here's what he says. Uh, let me just get the place. 
Uh-huh. Toast should not be confused with this type of possible kisnin. Toast is a regular is actually regular bread toasted in an oven, as opposed to a cracker that was never baked as bread. Once a bread attains the status of lechem, it cannot be transformed into a cracker by toasting by the toasting process. Where is the source? Kafachayim. Okay, so we got the Kafachayim on his side. He's got to be Hamotzi. Although a question has been raised as to the proper bracha for Melba toast, since the bread was primarily baked for the purpose of producing toast, the commonly accepted custom is to say Hamotzi. I don't know how he knows it's the common one, whatever it is, but I want to show you what he said over here. He brings here the Makor Habracha, which is not the book that I brought, the Makor Habracha in the second edition. Makor Habracha was from England, a very wonderful sefer on, on brachos, came out about the same time as as the Rabbi, uh, as Rabbi Force's book did, and he holds that it's Hamotzi. So now that's a, a legitimate machloikas that exists where Melba toast. We're going to go further now. On Melba toast, I went to the star K, and on Melba toast, the star K put it down as Hamotzi. So basically, it is Hamotzi, according to most of the people that we deal with. Doesn't matter if you're eating a small piece or a lot, doesn't matter whether you're having a meal or you're just having a snack. The bracha rishona happens to be a motzi. How much you have will determine how, whether you bench or not. But uh, but you don't. But if you have a few crackers, you're going to have to bench. That's melba toast because it's really a bread. So when I looked at the star K, I saw that he had they had over there uh, a tremendous number of discussions here, which I would tie into this. And I'm going to give you now what they list as things that you have to make hamotzi on. Three slices of an 18-inch pizza pie. Three slices of a 16-inch pizza pie. A half of a 14-inch thin crust pie. A half of a 12-inch regular pizza pie. A half of a 9-inch deep dish pizza pie. So figure it out yourself. That It's a lot of stuff you ate. <laughs> okay. Another thing that they're including as surprise hamotzis, bagel chips made from bagels. And that's the important thing, made from bagels. So if that is uh, a star K uh, psak. And then there's an article by Rabbi Rosen on the star K website, which also discusses the topic. And he says, very interestingly enough, yes, he says the Melba Toast uh, was named after Dame Nellie Melba, who wanted a low-fat alternative to bread because she was going to watch her weight. And the baker's intention when making Melba Toast is to create an alternative to bread. That's what she was trying to do. So even though Melba Toast looks like the uh, one of the kinds of possible kisnins that should be mizonos, the bracha melbatos is hamotzi. Uh, he says over here about bagel chips. Now remember, we just said bagel chips it, on the Star K website, it says hamotzi, but if it's made from bagels. 
So this is what what Rabbi Rosen said, and and that's why if you're reading, if you're going to buy it in the store, or you're going to buy it in a bag, you're going to have to do investigation. Listen to this: one of the most elusive possible Kistin bakery products is the bagel chip. Bagel chips are theoretically can be made in many fashions: baked, toasted, fried, manufactured commercially, or made on a small scale in a local bakery. Commercially produced bagel chips, according to the bagel chip companies researched, and I'm going to stress that, it's the ones he spoke to. He spoke to a certain number of bagel chip companies, and and he got information from them. It doesn't cover everybody, and it doesn't cover anybody who doesn't use this method. We'll see in a second what that is. He said, according to the people that he researched, They do not take fresh bagels and slice and toast them into bagel chips. In order to get a uniform bagel chip product, commercial bagel chips have fairly stringent quality control baking criteria, size, thickness, and texture. To this end, the commercial bagel chips are made from long loaves of bagel dough that are extruded and cut into uniformly sized bagel chips. In other words, each one of them is made as a bagel chip cut off right away from the dough, not coming from a bagel that was cut up into pieces. And then they season them and bake them and toast them. So these commercial bagel chips are manufactured as snack food. And so the bracha would also be How does a commercial bagel chip differ from one that was made in the local bakery? So you have, he tries to tell you how to look at it. He says it's not going to have a hole. Okay, I understand that. Furthermore, they're all uniform in size and thickness. If they all look exactly the same, then it wasn't somebody with a good knife. It means that it was cut straight off a, a roll of dough, and it wasn't the bagel chip, the bagel being cut. And uh, on the other hand, bagel chips made from leftover bagels which were originally intended to be eaten as a meal, would be similar to Melba toast and the brach on these bagels are hamotzi. If the baker has no specific intention, he or she often bakes bagels knowing that some of them will eventually be converted into bagel chips. Those bagel chips would be pasabakistan. So I don't know if you're going to be able to get into the brain of the person who made it and figure out what their kavanas were but this is what basically is, is, is the issue. Now, frying changes the whole thing. A fried bread product, like croutons, potato, pita chips, bagel chips, etc., they only mizonos because frying nullifies the bread status of a bread product that is less than a kazayas. If it's so small, it's not the size of an olive, then it, and you fry it, then it loses its shame of Bread. Boiling a flour-based product, such as pasta, always makes bremene mizonas. It's not bread. So bottom line, what I'm trying to tell you is, in the flatbreads, he says, are flatbreads, lavash, wasa bread, or cracker bread, are baked for snacking. So again, those those are not broken out from the from a. Uh, they're not they're not made from a from big pieces that are big breads that are cut up. The big breads that are cut up, that's melba toast. Or if you make the bagel chips or the pita chips um, from uh, whole things. 
Now, I got caught in this thing about the pizza chips because that's what one of the reasons why I was directed to this by my friend today. And he thought that the pizza, the pizza, the pizza chips are definitely hamotzi based on Brelsky's psak that uh, Melba toast would be hamotzi. Now, I, I saw how they make the, ba- the, ba- the, the, uh, the pizza chips. I went to find out how they're made. And it seems that there's a company called Stacy's. It's under the OU. And Stacy's makes pizza chips, and they show you exactly what they do to a certain extent. They cut out the middle stage, which I was very frustrated. I didn't see the middle stage. But the, the first stage is the most important. They're making regular pizza breads. And they show them making the regular pita breads. How they cut it up into pieces, that I don't know. That's not given on the on the video that I saw, so I don't know. But uh, that's the stage that I would like to see. But it seems that it's starting with regular breads. And according to what we've discussed over here, the bracha should be hamotzi on Stacy's. And a friend of mine, so he, he said, somebody pointed to him, he wanted to, he, he suggested to this fellow to buy it. He says, it's a nice product. So this, this gentleman I know, he says, I can't buy it. It's, it's too much, it's a shile of amotzi, and I'm not going to start with that on pizza chips. It's not a snack food. I mean, it's, if it's made from originally a pita, then it really was made as a, an, an edible bread. And by the way, the pita is nothing like the, uh, the Melba toast. The Melba toast, the piece of bread, is maybe five, ten pounds. It's a huge, long thing. It's like yeah, maybe a couple. It's a couple feet long. Very, very low, very small, but but very, very long. And the pita breads are regular pitas. In fact, they look a little big on the pita side. It's very nice sized pita. It's you know almost it's a foot long. So it's nice pita. And if they're breaking it in somehow into the, the pita chips, however they make it. They're starting already with the hamotzi. So there is a shiloh. So let me continue. I wanted to just tell you what else it says here on the, uh, on, on the, on the hamotzi and mazonas parts from the Star K website. Cal's, these, what I'm going to say now will be a little shocking to most of you, but they list here calzone from a pizza shop or pre-baked, pre-packaged frozen ones they say are hamotzi. Now, I want to tell you I spoke to the people in uh, one pizza store. I didn't speak to a lot. I didn't do a research. But I spoke to one person, and he told me that the calzone is exactly the same dough as he uses for the pizza. And the average uh, person, I don't do, make, I make hamotzi. My rabbi told me hamotzi, but the rest of the world, most of them are making mazonas on pizza. So it's hard to understand exactly why, why they're making calzone into a hamotzi. I can understand it from the point of view of it's maybe filling, it's a meal because there's something inside, maybe it's a whole meal, maybe it's not because you don't call it anymore, a, a, you know, you can't just call it a snack, it's already a big meal, like a meal, some of them are, you know, pretty big, the, the calzones, I don't know, that's what the oh, that's what the Star case says, you want to check it out, and I do suggest that everybody check all these brachas out with their competent rov, because these are very confusing, and they say croissants, uh, when augmenting a meal, you make hamotzi. A croissant basically is a piece of mizonos, and everybody knows it's like no, no different than a Danish. It's a piece of mizonos, but it's used in many societies like, you know, part of a meal. And if you use it as part of a meal, then you'd have to wash and bench. Croutons, if they're toasted, 
not fried. Fried fried croutons is no problem. There's mizonos, but toasted croutons really are pieces of bread that were toasted again, and that's the problem. And you're right there with the uh, with the original question of the Melba toast. Uh, mizonos rolls that taste like cake and are augmenting a meal, a dinner meal, and those that taste like bread um, seem to be also both of them seem to be uh, a problem for a uh, for, for being for, for, don't call them mizonos, even though it's the company calls them mizonos bread. Star case says if they taste like bread, they're bread. And if they don't taste like bread, they taste like cake, but you use them in part of a meal, then you have to wash and bench. That's the star case telling you. Soft pretzels. When augmenting a meal, you have to make hamotzi. And stromboli, whatever that is, from a pizza shop or prepackaged frozen, is hamotzi. Now, you may see different... Um, Different, you may hear different varieties of, of psukim from different rabbanim, and uh, I, I I can't really uh, tackle the, the topic thoroughly because of the. You see, there was a machlekas here about the etzim din about the melba toast, where as even though our rabbanim here in the states, as far as Rabbi Froa forced. And as far as the OU, etc., okay, I'm sorry, Star K, as far as their paskining, the Melbatos is going to be Hamotzi. But they do have the Sefer from Israel with a number of Poiskin from Israel who held that the Bracha was Mizonos. So this is something that you can discuss it further with your own Rav. And, uh, you know, with all these Shilas, your Rav will direct you whether or not it's kedai to be machmir or not to eat it without a meal, or we could be makelt and make mizonis on it when it's not part of the meal, or he holds it definitely hamotzi and you make hamotzi on it, whatever the whatever the situation. The point being that you have to read, you have to read the ingredients, you have to study the topic, and then you know what the bracha is and you discuss it with your rov. You can't go ahead and and and, and I see constantly it says a bracha on the on the packaging. Very often, I don't agree with the bracha on the packaging. Very often. I was just speaking to somebody from the OU, and he told me about a product that the OU certified that had a Hamish Ashkacha. And the Hamish Ashkacha wrote the bracha on the package, and the OU disagreed with the bracha, and they had meetings about it. I think the Hamish Ashkacha took the bracha off the packaging, or they changed it. I'm not sure. But I, I do know that uh, this causes a lot of uh, difficulty for different people. Uh, my consumers always ask me, you know, well, really, let everybody put on the name, the, the bracha on the packaging. Let them, let them put the bracha on. How are we going to figure it out? It's a good question. It's a very good question. But there's a very <laughs> big problems with it. First of all, the OU is giving hashgacha to a, a national company. The company doesn't necessarily want you to write the brachas on there. They have enough problems with a little OU or a little uh, OK or a star K on it. They're not really interested in you writing brachas. <laughs> so they're not, you're not going to get cooperation with them. And then you have, um, then you have obviously splits in, in among Rabbanim. And uh, sometimes it's too sticky to put it on the, the bracha because uh, you're, 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 making, you're making it difficult for people. 
I remember one case was a soft pretzel, which uh, they used some fruit juice in there. And I, I, I thought the bracha was hamotzi based upon the ingredients. And I called up the rabbi. And the rabbi said, you know, he said the bracha on the, on the package, and he said the bracha is hamazonas. I said, you know, I, I have a question here because you used, used the fruit juice that was reconstituted. So why are you saying that the bracha is uh, mizonas? I think the bracha is going to be hamotzi. So he said, I agree with you. I, I myself would only make hamotzi, but I, I, I did the best I could to satisfy the customer, which is, is the owner of the company. The company wants to make a product that you can have as a snack. So I put as much fruit juice as I can in there, and uh, you know I feel that you could say the bracha of mizonas on it. But personally, he said, I would make hamotzi. So he's writing down one. This is not two rabbis. This is one rabbi with two sides of his mouth. One what he does and what, he, what he's writing for you to do. So uh, that, that bothered me very much. And I think uh, you can't necessarily rely on what they write there. It's good to, to call the companies when you have these shilas, to call up a cashless agency and ask them directly, you know, some of the questions and, and did they did they research it? What do they feel? How do they know it? Ask them or have your rabbi call up. But you really do have to uh, do some uh, due diligence and, and follow up to find out how its product is made or, or what the bracha is from the people who who are paskining it, not necessarily on the wrapper. So, I, I mean, my story is a little strange. I admit most people wouldn't run into that kind of a problem but at least we should be on top of the game and be asking those kind of questions. So that completes the, uh, the three topics that I wanted to do today. And I see, don't, I don't think anybody called in. Uh, the telephone number here is 718-683-5858, 683-5858, if anybody wants to call in. If you have a question on brachos, I have uh, some farm here. We do have calls already. Okay, 718-683-5858, a few minutes remaining. I'm sorry that I took so much time. Uh, if I would have known anybody was going to call in, we would have taken the calls earlier. Somebody there? Okay. We have uh, we, uh, we have somebody? Okay. Hello? You're, the, okay. You're on Kashmir Sunday. Can we help you? Help you? Hello? I'd like... Hello? Yes, talk a little bit. Yes, guys. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you fine. Okay. Many years ago, the Jewish Observer had an article exactly about this, what you're talking about with Mazinus and Hamaitzi. Airline serve meals on the plane with Mazinus rolls. And it was written by Rabbi Eli Pekailbam Zatzal. And he said we were cheated out of a bracha. It was a beautiful, beautiful article. And it was, you have to wash and make Hamaitzi on it, even if, let's say, you go to a kiddush and you eat enough cake by a kiddush that you have to wash on the cake that you ate. Right. So it's not, what are we trying to to gain by not making the proper bracha of Hamaitzi? Well, you know the answer. I mean, you realize the answer, of course. Yeah. Yeah, people want a shortcut. They're in a rush. So That's don't the- eat. Okay, but this is the way people are today, and they've been this way for for for, for, ton, for tons of years. And uh, and today's pressures are such that people are, want to eat on the run, 
And uh, let's say simply, they don't want to wash and bench. Uh, Rabbi Avigda Miller Zatzal said like this. Yeah. I mentioned it here before, but it's, it's, it's appropriate to throw it in now. Uh, you talk about cheating yourself. He said that when you say, when you talk about the, the, the bris that is put into the man, right. that, that physical bris that we perform at eight days old, he said when the child was eight days old, he was fighting with the, the, the with the, with the, he was fighting not to be held down. Right. He, the, uh, the Sandak had to hold him tightly. And he, and he was rebelling. And yet, he, he went through it. And it's the most important mitzvah. The mitzvah of bris miller you, is one of those two, on the two, one of the two positive commandments that the punishment is kares, mm-hmm. which is tremendous punishment. Right. So here, here you have a tremendous mitzvah and you're doing it when you're not aware and when you're, you're protesting even. So here you're losing out on the, on the mitzvah. Uh, that you have. So Rav Miller's put forth an interesting thing. I just heard the whole video. We had a whole video from Rav Miller. We show videos from Rav Miller, Victor Miller. So, so we had this one, which was all, was the whole topic was this, it was just this, just this point. It's, he calls it retroactive Bechira, choosing ex post facto backwards. So really what we're doing when we say, we are promised, we're thanking Hashem that we have the bris. Uh, in our in our body, and that's that's what we're doing. So so somebody asked, uh, what about women? So Rabbi Miller said, well, women are the bris is for the Jewish people. We're excited about the bris. For the women, it's not a it's not a, a bechira situation, but an appreciation it is. But the, but for a man, it's an opportunity to be thankful some for something that he has, and that way he can get reward. And for the appreciation of having the bris, and Ramilla went on to about ten different things like this in our life. Uh, we say uh, that Hashem alokechem emes, and then we say the yatziv and nachon and kayon and yashav and neman and yahu and chaviv and nechmav and naim and nadir and we say all those things that we uh, are uh, how happy and excited we are. That we're the chosen people, and that Hashem is our God, and Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim, etc. We're we're so so enthusiastic. That is, we weren't there. We were there, but we weren't. Uh, our, uh, Hashem is with uh, at Har Sinai, but we didn't necessarily choose this or choose <laughs> to go out and leave Mitzrayim and follow Hashem. We didn't. We weren't worthy to have that. We didn't ex- have that experience in our life, but we do do it now. By our tefillahs, we can do it. And the whole benching is talking about the land of Eretz Israel, how important it is to us, and uh, the, ble- the blessing of, of what food is to us. Hazanas ha'olam kulo. It's a tremendous brachas. Of course we should be wanting to bench. Uh, Rabbi Miller says that we should, we should eat in order that we should bench. Right. So we should make hamotzi in order to bench instead of trying to make the mizonas and get out of it. But I it's human nature. I to say something. I used to teach... Um, cooking classes, when we made pizza, it was not mezainas. They had to wash on it. You don't want to wash on it, don't eat it. I said, when you finish eating the pizza, are you still hungry? No, we come home, we're not eating supper. Well, wash on it. Right. It's like, I don't understand. What's the... Big there, was a, there was Washington research. There was, no, there was research that was done by Rav David Feinstein. Uh, Ramosha uh, Feinstein was in charge of the uh, 
procedure there. They 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 did research. They called pizza stores and they asked how many pieces of people eat and is it a snack? Are they going to eat something later? You know, is it coming to, after with some simcha? They come for an hour. They in the middle of the morning. You know, they, they take the kids out for a little spazier. They were trying to find out what's the typical eating of pizza, how much it was, and based upon that, they made that psak. Then they came up with the one to one piece they said was a mazonos, and two pieces was a shayla, and three pieces was hamotzi. That that's how that was the research that the Rav David came up with. Whether it's factually the same thing today, I don't know, but that's what he did. Other rabbanim, such as my rebbe Rav Ashazim and Zatzal, the Derbetzina Rav Zatzal, and many other rabbanim held it was hamotzi, nothing to talk about. It doesn't. It's not a question of a snack or not. It's a piece of bread. Yeah. But Belsky said a very interesting thing. He said even if you hold that one slice of pizza is mizonos, the, the usual uh, frozen pizza is hamotzi, because the frozen pizza is not baked with that stuff on. It's it's partially baked or whatever they do, and um, and then and then the and the. Uh, Cheese and the, the the sauce is put on afterwards, so that when you uh, heat it up in the oven, you're finishing it off. But it starts out as a piece of bread so with nothing else. And some of the uh, recipes, if you'll see them, have a lot of water and almost no uh, other juices or, or milk or anything else in there. So uh, it, 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 he held that all of them should be really hamotzi. I'm sorry we're going over our time. I thank you I very much for calling. I gemalach Thank you so much. I just want to add that my friend is a restaurant owner, and many times he comes to the people and ask him, uh, he said, uh, they want them as a not bread. They said there's no such thing. We don't have. We are carrying only mozi. So mm-hmm. they skip the, the the they skip the the bread, and they're sitting in the restaurant three hours or two hours, but to eating. skip the bread, but Amazon, they're willing to do it. You know, it's it's it's, it's really it's amazing. It's it amazing. it's amazing. <laughs> very it's strange. Really, very strange. Okay, we be melamed schut on Israel. Good bench to you. This is Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashis Magazine, wishing you a very special year. Thank you. Likewise.